0: experience the magic of motion get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Nicholas Lehman is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a professor of journalism at Columbia. He's the author of four books, the most recent of which is Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal, and The Decline of the American Dream. Lehman spoke at the Institute about Transaction Man in 2019. As a long-time member of this institute, I know that talks about corporations are not the usual topic. So um, this is sort of talking about corporations from a, I hope, humanistic point of view. But nonetheless, you show great loyalty in showing up for this. The larger frame here was understanding what I saw as big, significant changes in U.S. and global society in the last half of the 20th century, One way to express the big changes was through words like neoliberalism and financialization. That is, how did the financial system get the controlling position in society, which I would argue it didn't have at the start of the second half of the 20th century, and I'll get into that a little more later. And then another way to frame it, which Eric mentioned briefly, this um, is sort of a, a joke, but not completely a joke. You know, there was this famous book in the 50s by William H. White called The Organization Man, proposing a sort of paradigmatic figure of the age. And that's on a shelf of a bunch of books that make essentially the same point. And I would propose that that Person was succeeded by a paradigmatic figure that I would call transaction man, or in recognition of the feminist revolution that took place between now and then, transaction person, who is less oriented toward working in big organizations, building big organizations, understanding society in terms of organizations, and more interested in financial and other transactions as sort of the central and peak activity in society. Just as a one of a million examples. If you just think about your circle of personal acquaintance, you know, in an elite university like NYU, you would have found in the 50s and into the 60s, the sort of modal thing for graduates to do would be to go to work for a big corporation as a sort of junior person and hope to rise up to ranks. Well, that never happens, almost never happens now. And the thing to do is go to work for a financial institution, a consulting firm, a hedge fund, folks who deal with money and swoop into situations and sort of make something dramatic happen and then leave. And I think in this change are very large social effects, which I can only hint at today. I'm going to give you this in the sort of very shortened form of these two characters who you may or may not know. The first one is Adolph Burley, who was born in 1895 and died in 1971. I'd argue both these people are, are major figures in American intellectual history, although they're not usually on the list of you know, the leading American intellectuals of the 20th century. Now, I'll talk about Burley first. He was Adolph A. Burley, Jr. He was the son of Adolph A. Burley, Sr., who was a German-American uh, minister and sort of social gospel type who was born in St. Louis and ended up serving in a number of pulpits in, in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Our Adolf Burley was raised in a sort of eccentric but interesting manner, and I'll just read you a little passage, there's a biography of him by Jordan Schwartz from a few years ago. Of all his reform activities, the one dearest to Dr. Burley's heart, that is his father, was educational reform. He hoped to create a model educational system in his home. A visit to the old country had left Burley resolved to apply German methods of educational discipline to American children, beginning with his own. Adding a dash of Montessori methodology, the Burleys set strict rules for their children, acceptable rules, which paradigmatically stressed individuality and freedom within the confines of family law. All the Burley children learned that freedom and discipline were compatible. When his firstborn was was three, Dr. Burley taught her to recite the Lord's Prayer in English, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Because he said, we believe that by training her to speak correctly and fluently in different languages, we would be at the same time training her in habits of attention, concentration, observation, and quick and correct thinking. By the time she was six, Lena had learned the rudiments of the ancient languages, mathematics, reading, writing, and spelling in English. The education of Adolf Junior, Miriam, and Rudolf followed this pattern. So, as you can probably imagine, all the kids were child prodigies of one kind and another. At one point, the father ran a kind of summer school in his summer home in New Hampshire where the advertisements say you know don't you want your kids to be like my kids send them to this summer camp and we'll we'll perform this magic on them so R. Adolph was admitted to Harvard College at the age of 13. He enrolled at the age of 14, and by the age of 21, he had actually three Harvard degrees, an undergraduate degree, a master's degree in history, and a law degree. And then he became a a sort of um, prominent liberal intellectual and lawyer, teacher. He was for many years on the faculty of Columbia Law School. In 1932, Burley, with an economist co-author named Gardner Means, wrote his sort of landmark book, which is called The Modern Corporation and Private Property. This book, which, again, is long out of print, but I I and many others, I think, would argue is one of the real landmark books of the 20th century in, in American intellectual life. It made essentially two points. The first point, and remember it's 1932, so you have to remind yourself the present is not the past, is just to announce that the large industrial corporation had become the dominant institution in the life of the United States, which was a stunning new fact. During the progressive era, the Gilded Age shading into the progressive era, there was a lot of uh, conversation about, at least among liberals, about trusts and robber barons and so on, but that idea was different from the idea of a corporation because the idea was that there were these sort of larger-than-life figures Rockefeller, Carnegie, Morgan, etc. who had accumulated enormous and and many would say excessive financial power but they were solo operators and you know the the liberal and governmental project was to sort of push back against them and, and control them. So that was kind of the state of play into the entry into World War One, almost the, this setup of great financial and business power, was understood as a kind of individual thing. You get through the war and through the 1920s and the stock market boom, and you end up, Burley observed, with a really different new system in which you have a series of very big corporations and he, he kind of made this argument all through the 30s, 40s and 50s and into the 60s So for a long time. And he changed the numbers a little bit but it would be variations on the theme of you know 50 big corporations essentially control the country and, and are responsible for you know a third, a half, whatever year it happened to be of the economic output of, of the United States. These companies were not, for the most part, run by a founding robber baron. They were run by a person who had been promoted up the ladder to the job of you know, the, the president or chairman of the corporation. So the first thing was how powerful these corporations were and how the people who ran them were kind of unanswerable to anybody. So the second thing, which is related to the unanswerable part, is All these corporations were publicly owned corporations um, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So they had stockholders, and that was new. In the robber baron era, those guys didn't have to worry about their stockholder. But in this instance, stock was very, very widely distributed. Almost the proverbial widows and orphans and so on owned small blocks of stock in these big corporations. So Burley's argument was the fact that these corporations were publicly held and had stockholders was kind of immaterial. Because the, the ownership was so dispersed that the management of the corporation did not have to pay attention to the stockholders. So they were this completely empowered group that got to run the country without being answerable to voters, to stockholders, to anybody. And he wasn't obviously sketching this out as a good thing. Uh, he was sketching it out as something as something to be worried about. And he also, you know, in ways that are quite interesting to read and persuasive, claimed. This is an entirely new form of social organization that has never been seen before in world history, and it's just presented itself in the United States in the last 10 years. That is a divorce of ownership from control. Control of the economy had passed into the hands of people who had no financial ownership or political ownership. So that was his kind of big point. And as I say, this was, at least in liberal circles, the conventional wisdom well into the 1960s, if not later. In intellectual history, you know, it's rare to have somebody make a totally new point and have the point be powerful enough to become the conventional wisdom instantly and sticky enough to remain so for 40 years but this did. And another thing that you know if you like to write intellectual history as I do you're always facing the question of well yeah but can you prove the influence of all these ideas? Well there is no better case than Adolf Berle. He's your dream come true if you want to create a line from the thought to the influence. So he published this book in the fall of nineteen thirty two and at that time he was actively one of the very small number of members of the FDR Brains Trust uh, that was you know essentially planning the New Deal. It was the core of the Brains Trust was three men, Raymond Moley, Rexford Tugwell, and Burley, who was, you know, not yet forty years old to his past as a child prodigy. So I'm just gonna read you part of a letter Burley wrote. This is a letter, August 15, 1932, almost exactly when the Modern Corporation and Private Property was being published, to Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt. He says, casting over the whole campaign, one matter, I think, should be considered. Obviously, the line is, therefore, to make some statement analogous to Woodrow Wilson's new freedom speech. That is, you need to have this sort of do the vision thing, as George H.W. Bush used to say. The issue, I think, has been tendered by the president, namely Herbert Hoover, in his constant recurrence to the idea of individualism. What he means is that government shall keep clear of the entire economic system, confining itself to emergency relief, keeping the peace, and the like. His reference to exploitation by certain financial interests is obviously a minor sop. Whatever the economic system does permit, it is not individualism. And here we get to a one-paragraph summation of the modern corporation of private property. Back to his letter to Roosevelt, when nearly 70% of American industry is concentrated in the hands of 600 corporations, when not more than four or 5,000 directors dominate this same block, when more than half of the population of the industrial East live or starve depending on what this group does, when their lives while they are working are dominated by conditions made by this group, When more than half of the savings of the country are dominated by the same group, and when flow of capital within the economic system is largely directed by not more than 20 great banks and banking houses, the individual man or woman has in cold statistics less than no chance at all. The president's stricture on regimentation, accompanied by a willingness to let the centralized industrial scheme dominating things occasionally run loose, is merely ironic. There is regimentation in work, in savings, and even in unemployment and starvation. Were the few thousand men running things a coordinated group, you would at least have a government of sorts. Actually, they're in the state of the political feudal barons in France before a centralized French government unified them, and the result was more individualism for men and women, not less. I can see the opposite view, which is a far truer individualism and might be a policy by which the government acted as a regulating and unifying agency so that within the framework of this industrial system, individual men and women could survive, have homes, educate their children, and so forth. Obviously, this is all written in the height of the Depression, or depths of the Depression. And then he goes into a sort of laundry list of things he thinks the government should do. Then Roosevelt and Burleigh agree that Burleigh should draft a speech for Roosevelt to give that would, you know, at least float some of this idea And uh, Burley, assisted by his wife Beatrice and various others, wrote a speech that Roosevelt gave at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on September 23, 1932, which is often described as sort of the founding document of the New Deal or the place where the New Deal was laid out. And I'll just read you briefly a passage of that speech. These two requirements, never mind what they are, must be satisfied in the main by the individuals who claim and and hold control of the great industrial and financial combinations which dominate so large a part of our industrial life. They have undertaken to be not businessmen, but princes of property. Uh, This is Roosevelt speaking, Burley's words. I am not prepared to say that the system which produces them is wrong. I am very clear that they must fearlessly and and competently assume the responsibility which goes with the power. So many enlightened businessmen know this, that the statement would be little more than a platitude, uh, were it not for an added implication. This implication is briefly that the responsible heads of finance and industry, instead of acting each for himself must work together to achieve the common end. They must, where necessary, sacrifice this or that private advantage and in reciprocal self-denial, must seek a greater advantage. It is here that formal government, political government, if you choose, comes in. Whenever in the pursuit of this objective, the lone wolf, the unethical competitor, the reckless promoter, the Ishmael or insult, whose hand is against every man's, declines to join in achieving an end recognized as being for the public welfare, and threatens to drag the industry back into a state of anarchy, the government may properly be asked to apply restraint. Likewise, if the group ever use its collective Power, contrary to the public welfare, the government must be swift to enter and protect the public interest. So what you have here is kind of a direct set of links from this book, The Modern Corporation of Private Property, to the early days of the New Deal. And of course, after Roosevelt was elected, Burleigh went to Washington and held a variety of posts and helped in the chaos of New Deal policy making and politics. Create a regime where government sort of pushed on corporations based on the rationale of this book and tried to sort of bring them into their social responsibility per the speech. What this wound up with, you know, oversimplifying hugely, but and you know, and, and part of this, of course, is is a government-empowered labor movement starting with the Wagner Act and culminating in the so-called Treaty of Detroit in 1950 between General Motors and the United Auto Workers. So when you come out of the Second World War into the late 40s and 50s, there's a fight in Washington which others have written about, including my friend Alan Brinkley, over whether the United States would adopt a more sort of social democratic system a la Western Europe or not not one, but what you had instead was a kind of odd legacy of Burleigh and Means' idea, which was at least within these big corporations that dominated a lot of the economy, they took on a lot of the social welfare functions that in Europe were taken by government. So they were, to a large extent, the providers of employment security, of health care benefits, of pensions. Things like that, in addition to performing their, their economic functions. And you'll all remember, uh, at least, knowing people who lived in this world where if you went to work for IBM or General Motors, blue collar or white collar you had a job for life and 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 they were these companies were unionized those lucky enough to be their union employees which included mostly overwhelmingly white men had as good lives as as factory workers have ever had in the history of the world and so on there wasn't a lot of cheering uh, among liberals about this because first of all liberals wanted a different vision in the first place and second of all as you got into the 50s as seen in the organization man liberals were very focused on the problem of quote-unquote conformity and that these corporations were imposing too much of that and then they were big and soulless and you've heard all those arguments but in effect the ironically the bearer of much of what in the 20th century was considered the core liberal project in in domestic life was big industrial corporations. Conversely, especially as you get to the end of the period I'm talking about, remember Burley was around for a long time. You know, in the 50s, he's popping up and writing more books that are variations on the theme and saying now the corporations are even bigger, even more dominant, even more totally secure, and even more immune to shareholder pressure than I said back in the 1930s, and not only that, Wall Street has become irrelevant. Wall Street existed uh, in the first place to finance the creation of the corporation, that's what people like J.P. Morgan did, but now the corporations are so rich and they make so much money that just through retained earnings they can expand all they want. They don't need access to capital because they have internal capital, the way a few people like Apple and Google have now. And this was sort of liberal conventional wisdom in the late 50s and into the 60s that, you know, Wall Street was sort of vestigial. It was kind of like a, a sort of fancy pants group of people who do your taxes for you or something like that. It was a small set of firms that did a sort of specialized series of functions, and they were a secondary actor in the economy. And the primary actor was the corporation. So we all know that that went away. What happened? That's a long, complicated story that, that it would take more length to, to uh, tell. But, but just as a, as a sort of capsule way of telling it, I'll talk about Michael Jensen. Not a liberal, by the way. So he's an economist. He's still alive. He's in his early 80s. And in 1976, he published with a co-author named William Meckling a paper called Theory of the Firm. Theory of the Firm was an an obscure new journal that he had started called the Journal of Financial Economics. It was published there because all the mainstream journals had rejected it. I believe this is the most cited academic paper of all time. As of last week, it had 40,000 citations on Google Scholar, kind of hit its world like a bang. It has a lot of formulas in it, but it's quite readable and interesting. And it is, I think, an event in American intellectual history and history. They start off with Burley and Means and say, you know, there's this model of uh, the corporation with very diffuse ownership and the, the separation of ownership and control. And Uh, This is a bad thing. But for Burley, it was a bad thing because the corporation could do whatever the hell it wanted and was unresponsive to, essentially, the political system. For Jensen, this was a bad thing because the shareholders are getting screwed. He just goes on and on in this about these CEOs, they're totally protected, they don't have to perform, they hire shapely secretaries, to use an example he uses in his piece, and rather than staying up at night stressing out about how are we uh, delivering value to our shareholders, it's just a crying shame to see these people robbing their shareholders in the way they're doing, and we must fix this problem. So then he proposes a number of ways to fix the problem and these include things that are now sort of familiar to us as as items that everybody is against, but to him they were progressive reforms. These include the idea that corporations should take on heavy debt loads because having to pay the interest on the debt would discipline the lazy CEO to be more profitable and paying CEOs with these very very heavy stock options so that they would feel that whatever the company's stock was doing if it went up a lot they would become very very rich because at the present 1976 when he published it CEOs you know were paid in a fairly narrow pay band and so if the company's total value of shareholder value didn't fluctuate very much they didn't care because it wouldn't affect their pay so this paper really uh, set off a new world. It was a person who regularly refers to this paper as sort of the holy grail, it's Michael Milken, who's still very much around. And it led to, it and a number of other things that are too detailed for me to go into now, led to a complete kind of reorg of corporate America and an explosion of this picture that Burley created that really lasted for almost 50 years. In the 1980s, one third of the Fortune 500 corporations ceased to exist. That's the level of takeovers, junk bonds, buyouts, private equity, leveraged buyouts, et cetera, et cetera. That this tremendous activity around corporations that understood them as inefficient bureaucracies, unresponsive to their shareholders that must be reformed in very tough ways so that they're organized around this idea of shareholder value. As CEOs go, you go from, in the 50s, these sort of statesman-like CEOs who were sort of vaguely liberal and would make deals with progressive labor leaders and hire fancy architects to design their buildings and have generous pensions to the era of Jack Welch, who's kind of the, the dream that Jensen and Meckling were dreaming of, of what a CEO should be like. It's all about any way you can increase the stock price and add to shareholder values, your controlling principle. And of course, the country had changed, so he was very much applauded for that. Things have happened since then, too, which I also won't talk about right now, so we have time for Q&A, because this, this, what I just described sort of covers the intellectual life of the 1970s leading into the kind of organizational life around finance in, in the 1980s and 90s. But when the smoke cleared... Within business, the balance of power had shifted tremendously from Wall Street being kind of vestigial to being the controlling party, or at least I would argue, and corporations being much weaker and more vulnerable. The reason this matters to a liberal audience, I imagine to be liberal like this, is that, as I said, you know, we had sort of stumbled into a, a system where corporations were a big part of the American welfare state. So when the corporation got kind of blown up, so did the welfare state. And I would argue or at least offer the hypothesis that that's a lot of the reason that you've seen rising inequality as probably the number one statistical change in American life over the last 40 years. And so it remains as a problem to be solved that cannot be solved simply by saying, oh, let's go back to the way things were before, because that's never possible, particularly in this instance. Um, So I'm I'm speaking just to sort of highlight it as an issue. Just as a final thing, as a PS, Jensen himself, following the familiar path, now disowns much of what was done under the banner of his original article and claims no one understood what he was trying to say and has written various things, sort of harshly condemning corporate raiders, the junk bond industry, the private equity industry, etc. He hasn't disowned his own work, but he claims that his own work was misapplied and misunderstood by greedy Wall Street types. And in his new iteration, he's become partners with uh, Werner Erhard of Est fame, and they have developed a leadership training system that trains people to be sort of responsible business leaders, and they fly around the world offering these week-long seminars, one of which I've just enrolled in for the fall, so I can report back after that. So, anyway, that's briefly taking you through the bookends of these two people, and uh, we have, you know, 15, 20 minutes left, so I think I'll stop here and and go, go interactive. What you said, is Gal- is, uh, is Galbraith a, uh, a sort of a follower of Burleigh? Uh, because you, you recognize a lot of the ideas that he popularized. And, uh... Yeah. In the Tanner lectures, I went through a whole shelf of, of people, one of whom is Galbraith. So the quick answer is yes. A lot of his work, when you reread it, it well, first of all, a lot of these sort of 50s best-selling books by academics. They're sort of head scratchers from the point of view of today because you can't believe there was a mass audience for this stuff. So culture was different. A lot of his popular books were really set up as complaints about the economics profession more than about the country and and sort of trashing other economists. But he definitely accepted and made central to his argument the idea that the corporation is all-powerful and and the Galbraith contribution not so much made by Burley is to say as you, as you remember corporations have the ability to create their own demand by by sort of it's the madman kind of argument you know they they can use advertising and sort of get inside people's heads and sort of make them want things that they don't need cars with tail fins and you know all those kinds of things and and so nothing could ever happen to the corporation because if you know sales ever dipped a little bit they just kind of manufacture some more demand for needless consumer products and then would be fine again, and again, it's, it's an argument. I mean, his argument tracks with Burley in the sense that that he wanted to enhance the state sector, but he he, he regarded um, the corporation not as a vulnerable entity, but as an all-powerful, invulnerable entity. Who's next? Who's, who's going to be the third picture. Well, I've been thinking about that, so I had this sort of a parlor game esque thing about you know the organization man and the transaction man, uh, which I came up with in when I was writing a profile in two thousand and twelve of mid Romney, and I thought you know. George Romney to Mitt Romney captures a lot of this. You know, the one is the, the sort of socially responsible liberal corporate CEO, and that's the father, and the son is the private equity guy and consultant who doesn't live in any particular place and kind of lands in companies and breaks them up and reassembles them and then exits. Um, So I said, you know, the father was organization man, the son's transaction man. So in conversations I've had about this with people afterward, several people I, I know have said, you need a third type, you know, to add to this. And the third type, the two, I'm going to use man with apologies just because it tracks with organization man. Uh, One nominee is called network man, and the other nominee is called option man. So I'll just explain what those are kind of the Silicon Valley and Wall Street versions. And then, you know, I can tell you a little bit about who would be the third picture. Uh, Network man, that's the idea that you often hear if you hang out in the tech world, which I just was in. virtue of being at Stanford, that all institutions and organizations are unnecessary and can just kind of go away. And all of human civilization and and economic activity can be done via assembling kind of temporary networks to do tasks that then dissolve. The, The great bugaboo of this way of thinking is bureaucracy, procedure, inefficiency, incumbents, things like that. Transaction um, cost. Yeah, transaction costs. That's that's post, of course, and, and many others. So that's that's kind of one idea. And there's a there's sort of network theorists and then you get these people who who are in the venture capital business who, who write blogs and stuff, and people in the tech business, Peter Thiel and people like that. Network man, if you will almost by definition, doesn't write big, thick books, but writes blog posts and tweets, but you can sort of extract. And then Option Man is sort of more about the incredible growth of the derivatives markets since they began early days back in the 70s. Around the time Jensen was writing his crucial stuff, you had Black, Scholes Merton, who uh, invented mathematical means of option pricing, which I'm told is a very difficult problem to solve mathematically and economically, and combined with deregulation and, and financial concentration, which is another part of the story that I haven't told, sort of set off this world that we all, uh, those of us not in the financial world, learned about after the financial crisis. The world of over-the-counter derivatives and mortgage-backed securities and swaps and, and all that stuff. And then you sort of edge into high-frequency trading, algorithmic trading, quant strategy, hedge funds. All these like mathematicians and physicists and people like that who churn stocks on an incredibly rapid basis. In terms of corporate control and ownership, you go from the Burley model of all these widows and orphans clipping coupons and letting the CEO do whatever he or she wants, to the Jensen model of the activist investor who bosses around the CEO, to uh, the option model where these traders are just churning, the ownership is sort of churning with unbelievable speed, and it seems like nobody's in charge except the algorithm. I don't know quite how to capture this, but one of the virtues of doing these kinds of lectures and getting a lot of feedback and then going back to work on it is, getting this kind of idea. So that's kind of what I'm playing with. Just on that point, what about the philanthropic mega-capitalists like Bill Gates and Bill Clinton is doing that Mm -hmm. now. They're using corporate profits for global change as a kind of dialectical synthesis. No, it's it's a perfect example and I will confess that in my uh, Years as Dean was my season in life of dealing with these people professionally, and doing so is one thing that got me onto all these themes. I don't know if any of you have done fundraising lately, but if you're head of a hundred-year-old organization and you sort of enter, as they say, the philanthropic space, first thing you hear is now... Not a penny must go to your organization and what it does. That's understood. Instead, I'm gonna be a strategic venture philanthropist and invest, da-da-da-da-da, and you know, make you do this entirely new thing, only 10% of which I'll pay for. It. Got it? It's a way of thinking about the world and how it works and how it should work that's quite striking if you had never encountered it before. So, you know, philanthropically speaking, there's starting to be some argument about this. I'm a little ashamed to to say the mainstream press is just still into this narrative that these mega philanthropists are quote unquote generous and i suppose you know they aren't i mean it's it's a little Like, what would Bill Gates do with all his money if he isn't generous? What is he denying himself exactly? Another way to look at it, my friend Joanne Barkin has been writing a lot of stuff about this in Dissent and elsewhere, is philanthropy is a way to get political power through financial power. So, you know, the Gates Foundation now hires lobbyists in most state capitals and in Washington to achieve political ends. So another part of this, and you see this in, in these big mega foundations including the Clinton Global Initiative, and this is a whole other set of topics, is sort of globalism as a state of mind as opposed to localism. Capital, I would argue, the most mobile element of all the sort of key elements in society now. and. All the other elements have to sort of catch up. So in the philanthropic world, there's a tendency to sort of do the same kind of thing, jet around the world, find problems that are genuine problems, propose solutions to them, propose solutions that don't involve the state or existing institutions or democratic processes and then leave and i I, I think really a big big question for the world there's a wonderful book uh called the great transformation by carl poliani written during world war ii that essentially says you know when the industrial revolution happened it took a century for the world to invent a social system to deal with the effects of the Industrial Revolution on humans. I really feel like we're at a moment like that now, where an economic set of changes have gotten way out ahead of where society is. And in fact, Jensen himself, in his later iterations, has written some of this about the disruptive effects of the financial revolution not using disruptive as a positive word, the way Clay Christensen and other transaction men do, it's part of the same story. As you look at these um, men and their influence, uh, were there any correlations with the growth in business school education and management consulting, or were they just going to binary way on the side? No, there, there's a big correlation. Uh, it's the growth, but it's also the nature. So that's a whole other interesting chapter of this saga. When uh, Mitt Romney entered Harvard Business School, the summer before you came to Harvard Business School, every student had to read this book called My Years at General Motors by Alfred P. Sloan, the long standing CEO. And the idea even that late, early 70s was, and this is a a fascinating book, but it's like a book that has all these org charts in it and stuff, and this is how I built the five auto divisions, and this is how I built Fisher Body, and this is how I dealt with the glass business. It's all about building a giant mega organization and how you do it. And the assumption was, that's what Harvard Business School was training people to do. By the end of the decade of the 70s, that had changed, and what the elite business schools understood themselves as doing was training these transactional people investment bankers various Wall Street not corporate America private equity hedge fund consultant those kinds of fields so there there was the growth of business school and the orientation of society toward business and then within business schools there's this very important change away from organizational careers and toward transactional careers so that's definitely part of the story well, how do you theorize the role of the state in relation to these economic entities? Because if you're talking about the corporation as a sort of analog of the social welfare state, and you know, we've seen the way regulation has declined as financialization yeah. takes over. So like, is there a kind of stable relationship between the two, or is the role of the state diminishing as financialization? Well, that's the big question, there isn't an easy answer to it, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one to watch. I mean, conceptually, I would say, and, and this is very facile, and, and I'm pre- preaching to the choir here, I'm sure... All of this proves that we should have a more Western European-style social welfare system that we declined to have because we thought we could load that job onto corporations. So I think that's my preferred solution to the problem. What will happen, though, is really hard to predict. For a number of reasons, including to say government has not grown despite all the rhetoric, the government has grown. Even in a liberal administration like Clinton or, or Obama, there's there's a real reluctance to use the kind of rhetoric that Burley and FDR, etc., felt comfortable using. My job, you know, as dean, the federal bureaucrat I interacted with was was Julius Genetowski, the head of the FCC, and you know, every di- after dinner speech you get up and say, I'm not a federal regulator, <laughs> and, and the whole idea is that government exists to sort of help entrepreneurship, and you know, it's a, that's the sort of model of government. I don't think that'll go on forever, because in Europe and here, you're starting to see more social demand and more populist politics, but it's very unpredictable. The anti-Wall Street crowd on Capitol Hill is almost evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, actually. There's a lot of super pro-Wall Street Democrats like Chuck Schumer, and there's a decent number of surprisingly anti-Wall Street Republicans like Chuck Grassley of Iowa. So who will own the populist sentiments here? between our two major parties is to me somewhat up for grabs. But I do think that as a prediction, Obama's made some moves in this direction, but over the next 20, 25 years, somebody's gonna have to figure out how to sort of deliver more of the package of health, retirement security, employment security, than is now being delivered, as long as we stay a basically democratic country, or we'll be a less democratic country. Oh, I just wanted to ask a question uh, uh, related to the previous one about business school, about ethics, business ethics, and what, how that's going, whether that's been changing. Well, I don't think ethics courses in professional schools, even though I presided over a professional school that requires ethics courses, um, are the key variable here. All business schools teach ethics courses, and basically what happens is they have them, they sort of Wither away a little bit, then there's a scandal like Enron or the financial crisis, and then everybody says, "Oh, we must have more ethics courses in business schools," and then they get a little more wind in their sails. But you know, I'm I'm a structuralist in my approach to the world, and so I think it's more important what business schools and other professional schools are, are taught are teaching people to do in the world than whether or not they teach them ethics. In no case do they not teach ethics, and in no case is ethics the central construct of professional education. I don't mean to be cynical and say who cares about ethics, and as I say, I have personally taught ethics courses and will continue to do so, but what you really want to look at is what does the school understand itself as teaching people to do? So what we would understand as ethics, in a sense, from in hindsight, doesn't really fall under that heading in a business school curriculum, which is the ideal of the corporate statesman, you know, which was really at business schools through the 50s and 60s and 70s that you should want to be a senior corporate executive and when you are one you should be a sort of moderate Republican who believes in things like affirmative action and peaceful relations with labor, etc. That's an ethical vision of a sort that was embedded in everything and that just got blasted away. Harvard Business School has a new dean, who relatively new now, who's supposedly moving it back to the more kind of holistic approach, the stakeholder rather than shareholder approach to managing businesses. So we'll see how far that goes. It's still the case at these elite business schools, and I'm sure you go into the Stern School and check me on this. You know, if you say to this student, Guess what? You can be a management trainee at Procter and Gamble, be an assistant product manager. They're not. They're gonna say, well, you know, how about a hedge fund instead? So theoretically, the business schools are kind of moving back to enshrining this more holistic ideal of what business executives are supposed to do. Can you locate Burley in the tradition of trustbusters and ed- yeah. attack on corporations? Yes. In the progressive era, there was an argument within the liberal or progressive community about whether bigness is a problem in and of itself. So, one camp, it's usually associated with Brandeis, um, is you know, big trusts should be broken up just because they're so big. There should not be concentration of economic power. And the other camp is have you know, big concentration of economic power and then big concentration of economic, of government power as a countervailing force and that's the vision you get from, you know, Herbert Crowley, Walter Lippmann, people like that, Teddy Roosevelt to some extent. Burley's interesting in that regard because his father was a friend of Brandeis and his first job was working for Brandeis's law office in Boston and so he considered himself a sort of Brandeis protege, but as I read him, and I'm pretty early on this, he ends up more in the camp of big centralized government in equipoise with big centralized economic power. And he keeps reporting that the, well, you, you you heard some of it in what I read aloud. He keeps reporting that the corporations are more powerful. Now they've gotten even more powerful and concentrated. Now they've gotten even more. But he doesn't tend to make the move of saying, so therefore, let's break them up. Instead, he says, so let's invade their space through the federal government primarily and sort of make them behave themselves better. So that's that's how I'd map him onto that debate. Okay, one more quick question from Renata, and then we should. Yeah, yeah thank you. Where do you see places of dissent? Uh, where do you see a possibility of critique? It appears that. First, now? Or, yeah, or, or 1% is ruling the world even more <laughs> than before, occupied, somehow mm-hmm. collapsed. In Europe we are doing more and more austerity, we are anxious, yeah. feeling guilty as individuals that we are not we're not traders enough in some way. It's not that our life is a corporation, our life right. is supposed to be an endless trade. Right. And you know, endless choices. Ideology still functions. Is that a possibility? OK, so my feeling on that is, I mean, this is uh, very much a long story short, but I, I, some of this is in the Tanner Lectures. And by the way, they're all online if you want to look. The last time I was here speaking, which was a few years ago, I was talking about this. I am a latter-day convert to political pluralism. The two great American pluralist books are The Process of Government by Arthur Bentley, 1908, and uh, The Governmental Process by David Truman, 1951 which I talk about a lot in the Tanner lectures. So I really think um, the problem that liberals got themselves into, including me, is the idea of the public interest. And once you don't understand society as a collection of groups that are fundamentally different, all of whom deserve honor, who are constantly struggling for power and influence and instead have the dream of a perfect educated elite sort of doing the right thing for everybody, you're in trouble. Because eventually what'll happen is that the elite will reform itself in this realm of financial power. And to some extent the kind of new philanthropy you were talking about. So that's, that's a super quickie version of what I think. So the way to think about this is less battle of ideas with res- respect to what all of us do for a living, and more in terms of you know, what groups, what structures, what institutions will push back against financialization. OK. So thanks a lot. And, um, anybody uh, who has any suggestions for me, uh, I'll be at this for a few more years. So email me, OK? Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.